brought to you by Bright Little Light Press. I'm your host, Dakri Carey, and today we've got guest host Kay Rhodes with us. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about outsourcing your non-writing tasks. We're going to talk about why you should do that, uh, how to do that, and when you should do that. So, first of all, let's dive right into why you should outsource your non-writing tasks. For one thing, when you're thinking about these things, many of the things we're going to talk about are things that are done by the traditional publisher if you go in a traditional publishing route. So, in theory, if you are going traditional publishing, you would never have to do these things anyway. If you are going the indie writing route, you don't have a traditional publisher to do these tasks for you. So then it becomes a question of whether you pay someone to do them or whether you do them yourself. But keep in mind that if you were going the traditional route, you wouldn't be doing any of this. The traditional publisher would do that for you. More importantly, when it comes to these tasks, you may not be any good at it. And that's something that I think a lot of people have difficulty admitting to themselves, particularly when it comes to things like editing your own book, because people think, oh, well, I wrote it, surely I can edit it. But I think a lot of people who are technically adept would also uh, probably say they could do their own website design or manage some of these other technical tasks. I think the thing that a lot of people don't uh, make the correct distinction between is whether or not you can do something and whether or not you're good at something, especially with like well building websites. A lot of people out there have you know learned some basic HTML or learned how to use WordPress and whatever, and they can build their website, but they really shouldn't have. Right. And so the things that can be a problem, if you shouldn't be doing stuff, but you try to do it anyway, you could negatively influence readers' perception of you or your books. So basically, it could look like crap, and readers could think, this isn't a real author, this is just some amateur. Or a crappy website could lead them, like, if you've got low standards in how well you put together your marketing or your website, they may think you have low standards in your writing. Exactly. Um, another problem could be your branding. It may not be consistent with your branding, or your branding may be inconsistent. And this is something that should be consistent across all of your channels, so your book and your website and your marketing materials, your Facebook profile, your Twitter profile, there should be consistency across all these channels about you as a, an author and your brand. And if you try doing some of these things yourself, you may lack rigor around enforcing your brand consistently. That means things like your logo, the names you use, um, Visual styling, like if you use certain fonts in some places but not other places, there's really a lot of things that go into that. Another thing that could be problematic is functionality. If you're trying to do your own website design and you've only got a passing familiarity with website design, it may not work properly. And that's going to be really frustrating to readers when they go to your site, and it can cause you to lose sales or right. also look like someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, and more importantly, when something inevitably breaks... Do you want to have to be the person to drop everything and fix it? Or would you rather have, you know, a person who you outsource the building up to it? Like, it's their job to make these things and make them work, and they should have done it right, and you can talk to them. Or if you add something new and, you know, want them to tweak it, like, that's what they're good at, and they're a hell of a lot faster than you. Yeah, so that brings me to my final point is frustration and time. So just because you can do some of these things doesn't mean you do them often or that you'll be able to do it particularly quickly. So I could design a website, but 
I would probably take a lot longer than a web designer to do it, and I would probably have to go look up a bunch of HTML or CSS to be able to do specialized things, and that would be really frustrating. Yeah, or e- even in our case, we've had a specific example of uh, the Bright Little Light Press is a WordPress site, and I'm a web developer, and I'm very familiar with a lot of web development technologies, and I can work in PHP, which is the language WordPress is written in, but I don't, and it's uh, way more efficient use of our time and frustration and resources to just hire out for someone else to tweak the WordPress site because there's so many people out there who do this as their day job and do a good job affordably. Which brings me exactly into my final point. It's like he's reading my mind. All of these tasks take time. And if you really think about it, you as an author, what you should be spending your time on is writing books. So taking your time away from writing to do all these other non-writing tasks, that means you're taking time away from making books. And the tasks we're going to break down today is by no means exhaustive, but it's a lot of work. And we're talking at least 20 hours a week of work on top of whatever main job you may have and however much time you may have to write books. That doesn't really leave you any time for your friends or family or your personal life. This is really time consuming. You shouldn't be wasting your time on things that aren't going to basically continue your career. Waste your time on things you're not proficient at. Yeah. Um, And a a good example of this is one of my former jobs was working in a law firm. I was an office manager for a lawyer, and the lawyer was perfectly capable of doing things like um, writing demand letters and writing correspondence to insurance companies and other people, but it wasn't a good use of his time. He had a specialized skill set, which was his law degree, And so it was a better use of his time to be negotiating with other parties, to be looking up legal precedent and legal arguments to draft the more detailed papers. So his time was better spent doing those tasks and outsourcing the other tasks to me, even though they're tasks he could easily do. It just wasn't a good use of his time. (laughs) On a practical level, he gets paid a lot more an hour than she did. Yeah, like think about an hourly rate. If, for example, this lawyer... His hourly rate was something like $300 an hour. My hourly rate was something like $50 an hour. So you want the $50 an hour person drafting your legal correspondence while the $300 an hour person is doing the legal work. Uh, On that topic, and this has been said in a number of other places, there's, there's a lot of value in taking the time to work out what exactly you are working at an hourly, like, what is the hourly rate you're working at? And given the beginning of your career with writing, it's probably going to be severely negative, but you can, you know, use an approximation of like, what is your day J job hourly rate end up being? Like, what do you get paid per hour at work pre-tax and every hour you're devoting to something other than your writing, you're effectively spending that much money that you could be earning at your day job. You know, is one way to look at it. I know that doesn't work out exactly for most people, but if you think of it that way, it's a good way to, what is my time worth? And would it be better to hire someone at like 10 bucks an hour or a flat rate to do this other task? Yeah, and you could think of it too, you could extrapolate the amount of money you're making on your books by the amount of time you spend on producing them. So say you make a book, just we'll, we'll go really conservative Say you make $500 on a book that you wrote in a month, and that works out to around 160 hours that you put into that. 
So your hourly rate would be that $500 divided by the 160 hours. Now, add on top of that 20 hours a week to do all these other tasks. So you're looking at another 80 hours on top of that, so that's 240 hours. All of a sudden, you're down to like barely $2 an hour for your time spent on that book. If you take away that 80 hours, it's still not a great return, but you could pay someone else and not have those hours chewing into your hourly rate, and that extra 80 hours could be half of another book if you took 160 hours yeah. to produce this one. And again, don't feel bad about your hourly rate working out to nothing or negative at the beginning of a writing career. Like, there are literally millions of books out there, and get, getting anyone to even know yours exists takes a lot of time and effort. So it's not a reflection on the quality of your book or anything like that, but it's going to take work before you become profitable. And that's pretty much true for every business. Yeah, a lot of independent authors say that they need somewhere between four and seven books published before they start to become profitable. So as a benchmark, that's a good thing to consider. Yeah, think of it as a long-term investment in a career that you hopefully love. And if you don't love it, I don't recommend (laughs) continuing to waste your time on it because it is not likely to make you rich. So on the flip side of that, as I said, these are a lot of tasks that a traditional publisher would do for you. So breaking down this money question into traditional publishing, if you pitch your book and sell it through a traditional publisher, I think I read recently that an average first advance for a new writer is something like $10,000. So if you break that down... um, We'll use this 160-hour example, although I don't think 160 hours is a realistic expectation if you're getting a book to the point that it's bought by a traditional publisher. Obviously, that's a big difference. But you may never earn out that advance, and the traditional publisher may not do the same things to market your book that you would if you were marketing it yourself. So you may not be, they may not be as effective as you would be on your own behalf at building an audience, getting yourself a fan base, You may never get a second book if your first book doesn't earn out well. So $10,000 seems like a lot all at once, but when you sort of spread it out and say, I'm producing three books a year, so I get $30,000 a year doing this writing thing, that's really not much money. No. And to to counter that a little bit, my stepdad, I think he got $5,000 advance for his last book, and I think the one before that was like a $3,000 advance, like... That may be the industry average, but keep in mind that averages can go up because, like, well, how many millions did Obama get for his... A lot. Yeah, like, unprecedented. So if everybody's getting $1,000 and Obama gets a million dollars, it's still going to bump the average up high. Yeah, that's a fair point. So however you break it down, it may not be profitable right away. Um, we are getting slightly off topic. Yeah. But the point is that all these writing, non-writing tasks take time, and this is time you should be spending on writing, because as an author, that is what your career should be focused on. And you need all of these other things to support your career, but that shouldn't be taking you, the time. Yeah, you need the writing to ultimately become profitable. Yeah. So if you're, if you're trying to do this yourself, say, and as I, in the example I used, say 160 hours to write a book, 
and then 80 hours in that same month to do all the infrastructure tasks. As I said, that's like half of another book that you could have written in the time that you're doing all these infrastructure tasks. It's time and it's quality. The people who are professionals at doing whatever that outsourced tasks are are in general going to do a better job than you because that's what they do for a living. Exactly. So what are the arguments against outsourcing non-writing tasks? I'm broke. I can't afford it. I mean, that's pure and simple. That is the main argument most people use against outsourcing these tasks. I recognize that. I I totally get where you're coming from with that. And having been a freelance writer for so many years, it is definitely frustrating and daunting to think about spending money when the amount of money you're bringing in is not high. But as we pointed out a few minutes ago, you have to think of this as a long-term investment in a career that you want to be doing for a long time. You can't think of it in a direct one-to-one correlation, especially when you're just starting out. There's also the fact that this is a false economy. And again, if we go back to the numbers we're using, say, 20 hours a week to do these tasks yourself, if you break that out to the hourly rate you could be earning at your day job or even working a second job for 20 hours a week, trying to do these tasks yourself could conceivably cost you more money than you would spend outsourcing them. Yep. And there's also the fact that that's going to negatively impact your quality of life, too, because you're taking time away from your family and friends and other hobbies to do these tasks. So you may have to give up exercising, or you may have to give up reading for pleasure, or you may have to stop having dinner with people you like. Like These things are going to negatively impact your quality of life, and you can do them for a short time without a huge negative impact. But if you're doing this over a long period of time, it's really going to burn you out. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everyone who's starting an indie career is working some day job, so there's 40 hours a week, and we sleep, I don't know how many hours a week, but there doesn't leave many (laughs) hours after work or before work for the things that you care about, and hopefully you care about writing, and writing takes time. It's just one of those things that takes a non-trivial amount of time to accomplish, even if you're really fast and good. And so you've got so few hours. Spend them on the things that are important to you, the things you care about. There's also the I can't afford it false economy of when you DIY stuff, your product may be subpar and amateur. And again, we've talked about this, but just other people who are professional know how to make things look professional. And more more explicitly, your stuff is subpar because you're not a professional, which is going to bring in less money. Yes. So, yeah, yes, I saved money, but now I have made less. It's like the whole penny wise, pound foolish. So you will make fewer sales, and you can ultimately be hurting your brand too. And so it may not just impact this one book that you've cut corners on. It may impact all future books negatively, especially if people leave bad reviews. Then people look you up as an author and like, oh, well, this author has all these bad reviews. Maybe four books from now you've improved, but they don't know that. All they see is this negative information out there on the internet. Which, by the way, the internet is kind of forever, so keep that in mind. Another reason people give for not doing, um, not outsourcing non-writing tasks is that they don't know how to find people to do it. Fortunately for you, we're going to tell you all about how to do that. It's not a good excuse. Find people, and we'll tell you how. Um, another people, or another reason people say they won't outsource tasks is because they're concerned that the people they hire are going to do a subpar job. And these people are representing you and your brand, so you can't have other people doing that. 
I can totally empathize with that concern, but you have to think of this like a business, a business that you own. And if people are doing a subpar job, then you fire them. Like you tell them what you want. If they're incapable of doing that, if they're not taking your notes and feedback and changing, then find someone else. Just keep in mind that yes, this is your career, but you've got to run it like a business. So don't be afraid to fire people. Don't be afraid to change providers if a provider isn't working out for you. Ultimately, you want to find providers that are a pleasure to work with and stop working with providers that aren't doing a good job or just aren't good to work with. So what are the non-writing tasks that you can and or should outsource? To make it easier, I've sort of broken these down into some categories. So the first one is infrastructure. And that includes things like website design, mailing list setup and administration, uh, copyright registration on your books, ebook and paper book distribution, accounting and legal thing services, and things like that. So we'll just go through these one by one, and I'm also going to put them in the show notes in case you don't want to take notes right now if you're driving or something. Um, website design. Probably, yes, outsource this. There are cases where perhaps you're a website designer in your day job and you can do your own website. That's fine. But for most of us, it's not a good use of our time or our skill set is not high enough to produce a good outcome. So that's something you probably ought to outsource. One caveat around that, there are a lot of independent authors who do set up their own websites through WordPress. And if you are familiar with using WordPress and you think you can reasonably customize a template, which there are some templates out there that cater specifically to authors, then this can be something to get you a quick website temporarily. Yeah, I think the same thing applies to sites like Squarespace, too. Yeah, that's true. Although I don't know as many authors who are using Squarespace for their author sites. It's sort of WordPress is the gold standard. Um, And keep in mind, too, that if you don't have money to outsource now, or if you don't have a lot of money to outsource now... You can always upgrade this down the road. Yeah. So you can always get like an affordable website design now, and then in a couple of years when you're making more money, go all out and like hire a real good web designer and get like an awesome website. Just don't get one that sucks. Yeah. Uh, mailing list setup and administration. This one could go either way. If It's actually not that difficult to set up a mailing list, but there are some technical integration aspects with your website that cause issues for some people. So if you're someone who's not um, comfortable with technology and sort of setting up these types of integrations, then it may make sense to outsource that. But if you're someone who's reasonably good at following instructions, um, MailChimp, for example, has really good instructions on how to set up the mailing list integration. And MailerLite is another service that a lot of people use, and that also has good instructions. And also you can do some sort of a compromise, too, if you're like... The managing of the mailing list and the event triggers and stuff like that, uh, you know, you can, that's pretty easy to work with on MailChimp. They've got great UIs for everything, but if you're just having trouble getting it hooked up to your website, I mean, that's probably a one-hour job to go to a place where we'll talk about later and just hire someone to just do a quickie job, 15 bucks, and you'll probably have it hooked up. Or you can ask a website designer to help you with it. Right. Yeah, if you already have one. Um, Copyright registration on books. This is so simple. You don't need to hire a firm to do this for you. Um, The U.S. Copyright Office has very detailed instructions that walk you through the process of registering. So do this yourself. It'll save you money, and you don't need another person. 
unless you're going to hire a virtual assistant, and we'll talk about that a little later, this might be a task for a virtual assistant, but it really doesn't take much time, and there's no reason you can't do this on your own. Um, ebook and paper book distribution. I'm going to give this a big fat maybe, and the reason for that is it can be kind of annoying to manage all of the different sites where you want to distribute your ebook and or paper books. For example, at Bright Little Light Press, we have relationships with Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Kobo and uh, Apple iBooks. And then there's also Google Play, which we can't get into right now because they're no longer accepting submissions. But all of these accounts have to be handled independently. And that means when you upload a new ebook, you have to upload it to five different places. And if you make changes, you have to make them on five different places. So there are um, aggregator services. I think one of them is draft to digital and there are a couple other services out there. If you look for them, you'll find them on Google. And they can distribute to all of these sites for you with one upload directly through their site. So it can be useful to administer it that way, but the reporting tools that you're going to get back from them are not as advanced as doing it yourself. So their dashboard doesn't have as much information as going directly to the providers. Sometimes it depends on the provider. Amazon's notorious for having bad reports. Um, but so there are pros and cons to doing it yourself versus having someone manage this process for you. And sites like draft digital I don't know what they're charging for that service. But again, if you don't want to do all these independent uploads, then it can be worthwhile to use one of these services to do it. Um, so accounting and legal. This is another maybe, and there are caveats here. Uh, when it comes to accounting, if you are flowing through income directly to yourself, like a self-employed individual, the accounting isn't too difficult. Um, I have been self-employed for a decade now, and I use TurboTax to do my taxes. It's not such a big deal as long as you keep good records. If you're doing anything more complicated, or if you're not good at uh, tracking data yourself, then it could be worthwhile to um, hire a bookkeeper or an accountant. And this can include things like managing your deductions, tracking all of your advertising spending, tracking all of your income from the different sources. In this case, accounting can get more complicated. And to give you an example, at Bright Little Light Press, for one author, we've got income coming in from like four different sources right now. And tracking all those different income sources and then tracking advertising spend and all of the assets, like marketing assets that we're paying for, that can get complicated. So if you're someone who's comfortable doing all that yourself, then you can do it yourself. But if you're someone who is daunted by the idea of keeping track of all the income and expenses, then hiring an accountant can be helpful. And you really don't want to mess up on your taxes. That can have kind of negative consequences. So... If this is an area where you are not comfortable, you should probably outsource that. When it comes to legal providers or legal considerations, there are some very basic things you can do on your own. For example, if you want to set up a doing business as to publish your own books under a um, publisher's name, for example, or some other pseudonym, that's pretty easy to find instructions to do online. But anything more advanced than that, if you have legal needs, definitely hire a legal professional. Do not try doing that stuff yourself. There are a lot of potential consequences to messing that up. Yeah. The, yeah, just don't even go there. And this could be everything from like a contract dispute. Say, for example, if you had been traditionally published in the past, 
but now you're trying to get the rights back so that you can self-publish your book. Or it could be a dispute with a provider. For example, if there's a cover designer or someone who's claiming that you've infringed copyright on an image. Um, or if you have a publisher contacting you or any, any sort of legal contact, hire a lawyer. Do not try to resolve it on your own. The next sort of subsection of stuff is around turning your manuscript into a book. So you have written your book, and now you need to make it something that can be distributed to the world. And these tasks include editing, creating covers, creating ad images, and book formatting and book layout. Editing. Should you hire an editor? <laughs> what do you think, eh? Hmm. Will you be able to spot the mistakes that you've been staring at four times and not noticed? I wonder. <laughs> hire, the, hire the editor. Oh, my God. Hire the editor. Just do it. <laughs> we have talked about this numerous times on podcasts since we've started doing this podcast. Hire an editor. Creating covers. Yes. Please. Hire a professional. You need to have a cover that looks consistent with your industry. You need to have a cover that looks professional, and you need to have a cover that is attractive to readers. And you need a cover that sends all the right signals to readers. This is kind of funny, actually, because I am a member of a few writing groups so that I can sort of keep tabs on what uh, a lot of independent authors are doing. And probably a couple times a week, I see indie authors who are doing their own covers, trying to share their cover design and ask for feedback on it. And almost universally, every one of those indie authors who does their own cover design completely misinterprets how people are going to perceive their cover. So one cover design, someone had like some sort of family drama, and people were thinking it was a horror novel based on the way the cover came across. <laughs> There's like just certain elements on the page, and they had tried to get clever with using a cityscape in the background, and it looked like some weird skin on some sort of monster creature, and that combined with the name came across as really ominous. Um, there's another book that was sort of like a sly humor memoir type of thing, and people thought it was inspirational because of the use of white behind the text, and again, the title could be interpreted more than one way. There's a lot of cues that we unknowingly come to associate with different types of books because that genre of book will tend to repeat the same visual elements and as people who don't do this for a living, we don't think about that at a conscious level. And so we don't know that, oh, if you put this on here, people are going to assume X. Right. And this is a problem for you because when you are trying to market this book, it has to look like it belongs in your genre. So if the genre that you're marketing to is not thinking your book is part of that genre, then, for example, this family drama... If she was trying to market it as a family drama to readers who want that type of story, they're going to go, that looks like a horror story. I don't want to read that. that sounds... I don't want to read about the family getting killed. Exactly. There's some sort of monster attacking the family. I don't know what's happening here, but I don't want to read that. You'll miss out on sales. People who do read your book will be annoyed because it's not what they were expecting based on the cover. There's just so many pitfalls around designing your own cover. So even if you think you're competent from a using Photoshop standpoint, just don't do it. Hire a professional. And again, this is an area where if you don't have a lot of money up front, you can always go back later and upgrade when you're starting to make more money. 
So you could get like one of the pre-made covers up front yeah. for a hundred bucks. And, and that's not even an uncommon thing about, I mean, think about how many different covers The Hobbit has had over yeah. the years. Like they just put new covers on that because it's Wednesday. You know, it's it's not a bad thing to put a new cover on your book. And like she says, the there are the pre-made covers are pretty inexpensive. They're not the world's greatest, but they're not bad and they're generally genre appropriate and, you know, relatively decent. They're a good, very good starting point if you're broke. They are. And you can look at and see whether they're genre appropriate or not by comparing it to other books in the genre. It's pretty easy. Um, but just to keep sort of iterating on something Kay said, yes, covers change regularly, and that isn't exclusive to the indie industry at all. Traditional publishers routinely change the book's covers. Often, after a few years, they'll do a re-release with a new cover that is designed to appear more modern or to appeal to today's readers, because covers can get dated pretty quickly as well. Mm-hmm. And, like, for example, one uh, common trend that's been happening probably in the last 6 to 12 months a lot of covers now have the words a novel on them. A novel. <laughs> Time Traveler's Wife, a novel. Like, I don't know why we needed that. I'm pretty <laughs> sure we could tell it was a novel to begin with. But now this is a really common trend. So a lot of traditional publishers are re-releasing new book covers that say a, a novel. novel. So again. <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> The point is, you don't have to spend all the money in the world right now if you're not making money and you're concerned about cost, but do start with some professional product. Ad images. This is another area where it can be worthwhile to pay someone to do it professionally. Um, Let me give you a a hint, though. If you are doing a pre-made book cover, you may have difficulty with ad images. Yep. We've run into this problem at Bright Little Light Press, and there's a cover that we love, but the cover designer doesn't do ad images, so we've had to try to get ad images from other providers, and nothing quite matches exactly. So for future covers, we're working with designers who also do ad images, so we can get the same sort of imagery across multiple places. More specifically, having them make the cover and the ad images at the same time. Yeah, although they can always go back and do more. Right, although... that One, you have to look for a provider who offers that service. Right. So a provider who offers that service, but as just a kind of safeguard, you know, one thing that happens with freelancers is sometimes they get busy with other clients yep. or sometimes something happens in their life and they stop freelancing. So, you know, that's, that's very edge casey. Most of them are going to be around for years, but, you know, if you can get them to do the cover and the ad design up front, have them do it. If you can't afford it right then, at least tell them, listen, I can't afford ads right now, but I am going to want them, so I want you to think about them while you are making this, and I'll come back and get them from you later. Another good thing to do is, if you're hiring someone to do ad images for you, try to get the layered Photoshop uh, cover image from them. Yes, always. Because that way you can take that to another provider, and if you have all of those elements separate, another provider can more easily create ad images for you. Right. Like, you may want the exact same image, but with different text. And if you don't have that on the separate layers, the other provider is just screwed. They can't change once it's been collapsed. Book formatting and layout. I'm going to go with maybe again on this. And the reason for that is there are some software programs that try to make it easy for you to do your own interior layout for your books. 
But as Kay was mentioning earlier, there are things like um, different ebook formats that require different sort of uh, layouts, or supporting older ebooks can require, or ebook readers rather, can require specialized um, layouts. And again, like Kindle versus ebook are different formats actually, and they require different outputs. Heck, there's like what? seven different Kindle formats now or more? I forget how many there are. <sighs> yeah, Kindle's a whole other thing. Um, so managing the different formats can be problematic. Mm-hmm. And if you're not really comfortable with all the sort of fiddling you're going to have to do to do the formatting and layout, then it's a, it's going to be a time sink, even if you do use these programs. And the programs I'm talking about are... Um, If you use Scrivener to do writing, Scrivener does offer multiple output options. So you can tweak your format output in Scrivener, but it's a little bit less user-friendly. And the output files that you get, some of the things that Scrivener does are not intelligent. For example, they put um, different style sheets out for different chapters. So, or different book sections. It completely screws up Amazon's preview. Yeah, Uh, it's a problem on Kindle. Not so much in other ebook formats. Um, So, there's another piece of software that a lot of authors are using to do their own formatting, and that's called Vellum, V E L L U M. And it has done uh, ebook formatting for, I think, a couple years, and they've just released in the summer of 2017 a version of it that can also do print formatting. So, you can format your book um, for print. So a lot of people are very happy with Vellum and say it's very easy to use and you can get a nice looking finished product with it. So if you want to do it yourself, um, using one of these pieces of software will let you do it. You can absolutely hire this out if you don't want to deal with all the technical limitations and restrictions or if you just don't want to sit there and fiddle for hours. Like Scrivener, I think um, formatting one book in Scrivener has taken us here at Bright Little Light Press something like six hours. And... Vellum, I think you still probably would spend an hour or two playing with different options and seeing that it's consistent throughout. And then there's also the question of you do it yourself, are you going to miss something? Like you have to be really meticulous about quality checking it if you do it yourself. If you hire this out, the professional you hire it out to does this as a day job, basically. So they are going to know what pitfalls to look for. They're going to know how to support the different formats. And they're going to give you a product that is finished and you're not going to have to spend these hours to produce things. Yeah. And uh, speaking from personal experience, I've actually read a number of books on the Kindle where the author, I don't know if they were self-published or the publisher just didn't pay, you know, spend the money for someone who really focuses on like getting it to work on all different versions of the Kindle. But either way, it wasn't right. And Honestly, it wasn't bad. My my personal take was, eh, the formatting's a little screwed up on this. I still read the book. I wasn't, you know, it it would be more of a big deal if you were in the middle of, a, you know, a gripping dramatic section and the formatting's off and it catches you and breaks your attention out of it. It depends on the book. But the downside, because most of us are just writing, you know, books with you know words and not the graphics layout isn't terribly important in those situations i think it's not a terrible thing to say i'm going to save my money here and be okay with the knowledge that on some sizes of kindle some old versions of kindle 
there may be the formatting may be a little off. It's just something to think about. Do do your best though if you're going to do it yourself to look at it on oh, these different things. Um, I believe Kindle has a previewer that lets you simulate different types of um, Kindle devices, so you can see how it would look on various Kindles. And to Kay's point of reading a book that has poor formatting, I am right now reading a book that uh, has POV switches, so it switches to different characters that are having different things happening to them within a chapter. And common convention for this when formatting an ebook is to either leave a line break so you can easily tell this is a different part of the, sec the story, a different section or something. Or to use a visual indicator that there is a POV switch, like an asterisk or some sort of um, image icon. This book has neither. So it goes literally, one paragraph ends, another paragraph starts, and it usually takes me two or three paragraphs to figure out this is actually a different character now, and something else is happening, and I have to do this mental contortion to shift it in my mind. Right. It's and annoying me. That could have either been the author was lazy and not paying attention, or it could have been a formatting issue with, you know, converting it to Kindle and they yep. didn't check. And I would have to look. I think this author is traditionally published. So this is not even within her control. This is something that the publisher has managed. Yeah, that's so, not acceptable. No. So the next sort of section of things is I'm calling them generically interactions. And this is things like um, social media management, like posting to Facebook and Twitter, uh, things like responding to emails, and things like setting up signings and appearances and convention stuff. Um, so this type of thing, I think when you start out, these are all things that you can and probably should do on your own. As you scale and you're making a lot more money and you're producing a lot more books and more importantly, a lot more of these interactions are happening you're probably not going to have time to manage all of these interactions and focus on your writing. So you probably will want to hire at some point a virtual assistant to help you do this social media stuff and to help you respond to emails and maybe even to set up appearances for you and manage like booking travel and making arrangements with bookstores or conventions. And if you're doing this, um, there are two ways you can manage it. One, you can sort of front load things. Like you could do a lot of social media posts. You could spend like an hour and prep a month's worth of social media posts and then use a scheduling software. Like uh, Buffer is the one that we use, but there are other ones um, to schedule those throughout the month. Or you could just hire a virtual assistant and say, here are my social media posts for the month. Like I want you to post them periodically or whatever. Um, the advantage to the social, the virtual assistant is that they can also respond to things. Yeah. Because and and that depends a lot on how much social interaction you're having at the beginning of your career, and you know when your book isn't famous yet, you know it it's actually probably a very good thing to be doing it yourself because you really want to be able to put in the personal touch, and because it's just not going to be that much workload. Exactly. But. As things become more popular or, you know, for whatever reason, you start getting a lot of questions that don't need the personal touch, you know, there will always be some that need that. But a good virtual assistant will pass those on to you. And the rest of them, like, you know, a, you know where can I find this, you know, X or, you know, just basic questions and they can handle those for you well. And for those types of questions, you can actually 
create a fact for yourself, basically, or a set of reference things so that whenever someone asks you this question, you have like a paragraph or two that you can copy and paste to respond to them. So if it's like, what book in your series should I read first? Or do I have to read these in order? Write a paragraph or two and save that so that every time you get that question, you can just have that response ready. And and don't just, I mean, yes, it's frequently good to have a fact on your website. I mean, it depends a lot on your material. But don't just send people to the fact, go, oh, that's covered in the fact, give them a link. Like, no, give them the actual you know, it's sometimes hard on Twitter with 140 characters, <laughs> but if, if, you know, the medium you're in allows you to actually answer the question, do it even if all you're doing is copying and pasting from the fact yourself because people don't read facts and people never want to have, oh, go read this wall of text. But it was just Or, a oh, question. go somewhere else for this answer. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it, it shows that you care and it shows that, you know, it, it's just better for everyone. If you do outsource these things, make sure that your virtual assistant knows what your brand is and has a good sense for what your voice is going to be in responding to things. So if you are a bubbly, upbeat person, you don't want to hire someone who's grumpy or terse, because then it's not going to look like it's coming from you, and also it could negatively impact your brand. Right. And like one of the... Uh... TV personalities that I follow on Twitter uh, has an assistant who on Twitter who just refers to herself as Web Girl, but she has her own personality representing him, and it's you know it is very much a personality that goes along with the brand uh, with his personal brand that he's putting out there, and it's it doesn't feel weird to have her answering these things for him and it doesn't feel out of line. And so it's, they don't have to pretend to be you. Um, so that is something you should figure out if you want them to pretend to be you or if you want them to be a distinct person who is representing you. Right. And, uh, but, but Dacre is absolutely right. The voice that they have is, it's very important to make sure that the voice that they use matches you and what you're trying to put out. And also is something that the people in your genre are going to be okay with. If you write horror novels and your assistant is super perky and cheerful and is always like adding smiley and uh, exclamation points everywhere. Lots of heart emojis. Yeah, that may not be appropriate. (laughs) So just think about that if you decide to outsource that. But if you're writing a romance, hire that person. Oh, yeah. Heart emojis everywhere. Heart emojis for everyone. Um, Okay, so... Another type of task that you may want to, group of tasks that you may want to outsource is producing an audiobook. So, definitely. You could simply outsource the entire process. There are companies that will do the entire production for you. And actually, I know a number of indies who have lately gotten inquiries about they've written successful ebooks and people want to outsource, or yeah, nope. people want to come in and produce the audiobook for them. Because they're looking to add new audiobooks to their catalog. And make money. And make money. Um, Or you can do it yourself, or you can outsource parts of it. So the tasks going into producing an audiobook include hiring a narrator, reviewing... A voice actor. It depends. Um, Hiring a narrator, reviewing the audio and offering direction and or feedback, packaging it up electronically for distribution getting an audiobook cover made, 
and uploading it to various distributors. So hiring a narrator, or as Kate points out, voice actor. I, I, I agree that it can depend on the type of book. If you're just if it's a factual book, then yeah, it is a narrator and there there is a difference between a narrator and a voice actor, and I guess we can go in, into that in a minute. I, we can talk about it now. Uh, the the key for me, I'm a huge fan of audiobooks and the voice actors out there truly are actors. These are not just people reading your words. And it makes a world of difference to have someone who is a really skilled voice actor act out the book. Uh, They will put the emphasis in the right place. They will put the tone in the right place. They will sound scared or energized or excited at the right places. And there, there's a huge difference between uh, their tone and yours also. For example, there's a number of books which I've read and am now listening to, and I, the, I know this, this text, and I'm like, I would have not put the emphasis there at all. And it's not that it's bad what they've done, but it shows the difference between how I would have interpreted this text emotionally and how they're interpreting the text emotionally. And they bring a character to it, to life in their own way. And so it's hiring a voice actor is really a big deal for novels and finding one who... Uh, listen to their existing stuff, even if it's not necessarily a book you're particularly interested in, and listen to one of their things and see, like, do they treat that text in a way that would match how I want them to do it in mine? And with the narrator, the, the problem is more like, does this person have a good speaking voice? Do they enunciate correctly? I mean, that applies to voice actors as well. But, you know, are they going to put me to sleep if I'm listening to this? Uh, because, you know, some more factual stuff can just be mind-numbing with the wrong narrator. And you glaze out, and I didn't hear the last two pages worth of text. Once you have settled on a narrator, you will want to review early samples of the audio they're recording for you and provide direction or feedback. Or fire them. Or fire them. So you definitely don't want them to produce the entire ebook's worth of audio and then send it all to you at the end? No. You want to get, like, a scene and listen to it and provide feedback on the interpretation they're using, if there's something you want them to change in terms of pacing or anything about the way they're narrating it. And keep in mind, this takes time and effort and work for them. So, like, don't ask people to do a scene for free, and then we'll see if we'll do the rest of the book. No, no. You've done your research to think this is a plausible person. They will do actual work for you to make that scene. Pay them for it, even if you end up not going with them. Unless you're doing a profit share, in which case, if you're doing a profit share, the expectation is that they will get some percentage of your sales, and then you're not expected to pay them for it. But don't be a dick and say, I want to hire you, and then decide to change your mind after you hear some of their work. Make sure you want to hire them. Especially if you're doing a profit share, there's probably going to be a contract involved, and getting out of that contract and hiring a different writer could be more complicated. Right. Pay pay for a sample up front. And keep in mind, like Dakery said about don't be a dick, like if you do have to like say, No, I'm sorry, this isn't working out, it doesn't matter why it's not working out 
word it politely because it's not a huge community of voice actors out there and you don't want them telling each other that person's a dick like <laughs> he will just like fire you and not pay you and he's terrible to work with. like be professional with these people like you would with anyone else so that you know you can hire them and you know maybe you'll talk to some you got a new book series and you could call up your favorite uh you know voice actor hey i'd love you to do this and she says I can't, I'm totally overbooked right now, I can't handle it in the time frame you need, but let me recommend a friend of mine who's really good. Uh, Once you get the audio from the voice actor or narrator, you're going to have to package it up electronically for distribution. So there may be some technical know-how involved in that, and different distributors may need different sort of requirements. This is something that you'll have to look into if you want to do any of this yourself. And you are going to have to have a different cover. So audiobooks, the book covers for them are in a different aspect ratio. They're square, where your traditional book cover is rectangular. So it's not usually a simple matter of cutting off the top and bottom of your book cover. That usually doesn't work. And it's probably not a matter of adding space to the left and right side. That's not going to look good. No, and this goes back to the whole thing we said before about getting the ads done at the same time. Get get an audiobook do- cover done at the same time, even if you're not sure if you're going to do an audiobook. I have like, to disagree with Kay because an audiobook cover can add a lot of expense. What you really want to do is find a provider who will do an audiobook cover for you later if you decide to add that on. That's an option too. Um, one of the cover designers we've been working with for Bright Little Light Press is Damonza, D-A-M-O-N-Z-A. And they will go back and add services for whatever so we have had them do some ebook covers for us for books that are coming out from some of our authors later this year, but the final print version isn't finalized yet, so we can't get the print um, cover done yet because that depends on the exact number of pages, but we've made them wary. Yes, there's going to be a print cover for this, and when you're designing the ebook cover, keep in mind that we'll also need a print cover in a month or two. Same thing, if you're going to do an audiobook or you think you might do an audiobook, let them know. There may be an audiobook of this. Is this something you could add for me at a later time? Um, finally, there's the infrastructure involved in uploading it to the various distributors. And this is very similar to dealing with the different ebook providers. So, this is absolutely something you can do yourself. It just takes more time to do it yourself. And it's if you can get the right file formats, it shouldn't be that technically difficult. It should just be go here, upload this file. Um, so, you don't need to outsource that part unless you have a virtual assistant and you just want them to do it so that you don't have to mess with it. Marketing. All of these tasks take time, but marketing is the one that never ever stops. Marketing includes things like creating marketing assets, um, writing marketing copy for your ads or a copy for product pages, uh, knowing how and where and when to market your book. So this includes things like What promotional sites should you use if you're running a promotion? Um, Are there blog sites in your industry that may be a worthwhile marketing tool? Uh, Do you know how to market on Facebook or Amazon? There's a lot of sort of inside knowledge around knowing how and where to market books. So creating marketing assets, should you hire someone for that? I would say maybe to probably. Um, You should have some core marketing assets that are professionally designed. So as we said earlier, if you hire a cover designer, have them do an ad design for you at the same time, 
just so you have like a basic ad. And this probably will be a Facebook banner or a still banner. Um, you can do your own marketing images. There are some services that a lot of authors I know use. One of them is called Canva, C-A-N-V-A, and it basically allows you to superimpose your book cover on some background. So I've seen like book cover on a beach or book cover with someone's feet up in the air. There's sort of a lot of variations, but in my opinion, those look sort of amateur. It's like a sort of cheap version of having a real marketing image done. So you can use tools like this to do it yourself, but you may not have the impact that you would with a professionally designed image. So it's something to keep in mind, and this may be something where you can save money early on and then go back later and have better marketing images done professionally. But keep in mind, without good marketing images to drive people to your books, you may not sell as many books. So it's sort of a catch-22. You kind of have to put in money up front to get, make money back. So another one that we talked about, writing marketing copy for ads and product pages. Um, I'm going to say this is also a maybe to probably. It depends on your background and your skill set. So believe it or not, writing copy is a specialized skill set. Just because you can write a book doesn't mean you can write book copy or marketing copy. Yeah, it's my impression that the authors rarely actually write the blurb on the back of the book in most publishing. Yeah, in traditional publishing, it's usually not the case. And also in traditional publishing, the authors would never be writing marketing copy. That just wouldn't happen. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I, th I think a lot of authors would assume they'd write the blurb because like, hey, I wrote the book. Of course I can do it. But like blurb writing actually is a specific skill set. Like, it is. There's a lot that is different and has to be paid attention to when writing those. It is. And so if you were going to pitch your book to a traditional publisher, you would be expected to provide a synopsis, but that is not the same as a blurb. And yeah, as Kay was saying, that's a different skill set. Um, so and as I was saying, writing copy is a different skill set. And if you're a good writer, you probably can study examples in your genre and sort of emulate those using your own tone and your own words based on your book. So this is an area where you could do it yourself, but because you're not familiar with the rules around what makes good copy and you may not be um, objective enough about your own work. Good marketing copy. Good marketing copy. Yeah. Um, and you may not be objective enough about your own work to really speak about it in terms that appeal to readers because you are so intimately familiar with your work, then the marketing copy that you do write may not have the conversion rate that you would want it to have. So you could save money and do this yourself, and I don't mean to imply that no authors have ever been successful doing it themselves because there are certainly authors who've had great success. Yeah, especially, especially in the indie area. Like yeah. A lot of them do write their own blurbs. A lot of them do write their own marketing copy. And, uh, you know, frequently it's because, well, I'm a writer and I'm broke. So, but at the same time, you know, I, I think that I think like Dakri says, this is absolutely a debatable area. I would say if you're going to cut corners somewhere this might be a reasonable place to start. But if you do that, just be prepared to study a lot of successful ads in your genre and really analyze them and figure out what is making them successful. Yeah. It, you can't just copy the language and put your book title in. That doesn't really work. You have to understand, really dissect it, and know why this is getting good conversions. 
And as someone who's not in the loop, you don't really know how well these ads are converting either. You could see ad examples in your genre that are actually doing horribly, and you have no way of knowing right. whether they're doing well or not. Yeah. Just because you saw the ad and it was pretty doesn't mean it's actually working. Yeah. And, yeah, so you can do it yourself, and this is also easier to do yourself if you're prepared to do it over a longer period of time and tweak and iterate. But keep in mind that if you do do it yourself, you are saving money on hiring it out, but you could be losing money on potential sales. And in this case, you could also be losing money by paying for ads that are not going to be successful. Yeah. That, so as and that you, adds up fast. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> as you iterate and put out different versions of an ad, say you've got three versions of an ad that you want to test, and you've got a $5 budget for each of those versions per day for three days just to see. So you're looking at $45 to test those ads and maybe in the end, none of them work, so you have to throw them all out. Or maybe you do find one that works, but then you have to tweak it, and all of this cost of running these ads long enough to get the data is going to add up. So if you can hire someone who right off the bat makes you a successful ad, then you're paying whatever you pay to market it, that's great. Um, so there's, there's pros and cons in that, doing it yourself. Uh, so about product pages and blurbs and things like that, when you are an indie person, that is something you probably can expect to do yourself. But that doesn't mean you can't get help. So you might do some studying about what makes a good blurb and study product pages in your genre, especially the like top 100 sellers in your genre. Look at their product pages and see what they're doing. Then draft something based on your book, but ask for help. Like, if you're a member of a local writer's group, say, here's my blurb. Do you guys think I could improve this in some way? And incorporate that feedback. Really help you iterate to go from good enough to fantastic. The question of knowing how and when and where to market your book. That is a big catch-22. If you're just starting out, you don't know any of that. You have to do a lot of research, do a lot of testing, and you're going to lose a lot of time and money while you try to figure it out. If you can hire someone up front who is experienced in marketing books in your genre, they can shortcut that entire process for you and start you off right away with a successful marketing plan. So you can do this yourself, but it will take you a lot more time to figure out what you're doing. If you don't have the budget to allocate for this, then this is an area where you can cut corners. Just be prepared to know that it's going to take you longer to have positive results. Yeah, and the longer it takes you, the more it's going to cost. Uh, one option that people don't think about very often is, like, you may not have the money to hire someone to do this for you, but you may have the money to pay for a couple hours of that person's time and say, like, listen, I can't afford you to, you know, to hire you to do a full campaign for this, but can I pay you for two hours to sit down with you and ask you some questions and give me some advice about it so that I can go off and do this myself? And there are a lot of profession, professionals in almost every industry who would be happy to do that. And, you know, it doesn't matter if the first one you ask says no, go ask another one. And that's really an invaluable shortcut if you can't afford to have them do the full thing for you. Yeah, that's a great uh, recommendation, Kay. Thank you. And finally, in the marketing area, hiring a PR firm. So PR firm makes most people think of a lot of money and want to scream and run away. 
And to be honest, there are a lot of PR firms that have had difficulty adjusting to the changes in digital marketing and are not all that successful now versus 15 years ago before everything started becoming digital. So if you choose to hire a PR firm, you need to understand how that firm has adapted to today's marketing needs, and you need to find out what they have that can work with your budget. So it doesn't have to be super expensive to hire a PR firm. You could be very specialized in what you request from them and have a much more affordable option. But probably for most people who are just starting their career, a PR firm is not a good expense. Yeah, I I would strongly agree with that. It's like to get a good PR firm who's going to do a good job, A, they're usually expensive and they're not usually doing like, oh, we'll just do this one part of it now. They're used to doing a full campaign for whatever the thing is. And it's a lot of work and it involves a lot of people and it costs a lot of money. So yeah, like she says, I think unfortunately for most indie folks, it's like someday I will be able to hire a PR (laughs) firm for this. Actually, I think you should have a wish list for things you would like to do when you're making more money and PR firms should go on it. But you're just going to be very selective when you start hiring that. And keep in mind, if you are traditionally publishing, there would be a PR firm supporting you. So this is something that you would have in the traditional route But as an indie author, if you're not going to go traditional, you're going to have to work around it until you're ready to hire it. And I would say it's hard to really make generalizations because I don't know how quickly you are going to build your career, but probably a year or two into your career might be a good time to start thinking about a PR firm. Or, as I said before, a lot of indies have reported between four and seven books becoming profitable for them. Maybe when you get somewhere in that four to seven book range, consider hiring a PR firm. It wouldn't hurt to consult with one earlier, but they may even charge you for a consultation. All right, so that's not intended to be a comprehensive list of the writing non-writing tasks that you can outsource, but that covers most of the basics, and hopefully you understand some of the criteria you should be using to judge when to outsource. So now we're going to talk about how to outsource. So the first thing you need to do before you can really outsource is define your objectives and your budget. You need to have a clear idea about what you want to achieve when you outsource a task. If it's a website, then you need to know what you want to have on your website. Let's just give you an example. We'll go through this. Um, So say with a website design. First thing you should do is look at other examples by successful authors in your industry. And this is another thing where you could go to Amazon and like look at the top 100 authors in your genre and Google those authors. See what their websites look at like. Make note of the things that you like and you don't like about those websites. Um, save the website URLs so that you can show your website provider what you like and don't like. And also note if there's anything that's same about each of these websites, because that may be something that would be expected in your genre or something that's working well for authors and so it's being included on multiple sites. Then think about the things that you're going to have to provide, and that includes things like website copy for your about page, um, copy for a home page, if you want to have a fact, copy for your frequently asked questions page, um, copy for your book pages, you're going to have to provide all that copy or hire someone to do it. Um, That's not something that the website designer is going to do themselves. But no matter what, you've got to get a list of it. Yeah. Um, You will need book cover images for your website, so... You're going to have to have those images. 
Um, you probably will want an image of yourself for the about page, and this may be something where you want to have a headshot, unless you have a really awesome picture that someone has taken, but just be careful about using casual images as your author image. Um, and then you may want other images as well. And this is an area where a site designer may have recommendations for you or they may provide images themselves. But if you have images that you'd like to have used on the website, collect those together. And ultimately, keep in mind that the more information you have about what you want to do, the better you'll be able to communicate that to the provider. And that means you're more likely to get exactly what you want and you're gonna get it faster because the provider is gonna have all the information they need to work with. And in theory, you could also get it cheaper because if, it, if you're paying someone by the hour versus a flat fee, then having to go back and forth with you constantly to get all the information they need is gonna add up to them in terms of hours. There are going to be, if they're doing their job right, they are going to bill you for the time they're spending chatting with you you know, getting information out of you, writing, writing emails to you, because that's them doing something for you. It's not their fun time. Yeah. Um, so whatever task you're outsourcing, you need to um, describe the goals that you want to achieve when you outsource. And that could be formal, like actually writing out a mission statement for your outsourcing project or a brief. And you want to describe your brand so that whoever you're outsourcing to understands what your brand should be. And this could be if they're doing writing for you or if they're doing visual design for you, you should have some sort of language to communicate to them what your brand is. And make sure that whatever you're doing is consistent with your industry. So if, or with your genre in the industry. So if you're a horror author, you probably will have different, uh, expectations in terms of copy and images and your visual brand and your verbal brand than if you're a romance author. Those are different things. And it, if you can be clear about your objective, like your website could serve different purposes. You could try to sell your books through your website and that would require to have an ebook or e-commerce platform on the back end. Or you may want your website to be a destination where people can go to learn about you. You may want to blog on your website. These are all different sort of formats for what your website should be. And there's also things like different goals. for Some people write books as a way to draw up attention for some service they provide. You know, that is not an uncommon thing to do. And yes, they're trying to make money off of the book, but that is to drive to the service. So... In that case, one purpose of the copy on the website might not actually be to sell the book, but to weed out people who would be a waste of your time, you know? And you're never going to want to write copy that says, yeah, I just want to weed out all the schmucks, (laughs) but that is what you're doing. So, you know, the goals aren't always the same just because you've written a book. Yeah, and if you're thinking about marketing, for example... You would have different objectives when marketing. Sometimes you might be trying to get people to buy your book. Other times you might be trying to get people to sign up for your mailing list so you can sell them a future book. Um, Other times you might be trying to get them to share a giveaway that you're doing to spread awareness about your brand. So there are a lot of different types of objectives with each of these tasks. Yep. When you're looking to find a provider, here are some things you should think about. When possible, ask other authors for recommendations. That is the best way for you to find out about people who will do a good job in your industry. And 
to go back to the website example we were just talking about, um, find authors whose websites you like and look in the footer of the website to see if they have credited their designer. A lot of times it'll say designed by such and such. And if it doesn't say that, you can right-click and say view source, and sometimes they've hidden it near the top or bottom of the source code. If you can't see easily what an author, who an author is using, email them. Hit them up on Twitter. Hit them on Facebook and say, hey, I really like this thing that is part of your brand. Like, would you recommend a provider for that? Like, is there yeah. someone that you've used that you would recommend? Um, I really like your website. Would you recommend your designer? Your email campaign is great. Did you write that yourself or did someone do that for you? Like, just contact them. Yeah. As writers, we are definitely happy to talk to other people about our stuff. Yeah. And it's not like it's going to hurt the other author's business if they give away who built their website. Like, they don't care. They want or that. they may even, if they really like the person they worked with, they want that person to do well and get more business. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing you can do is look for writing groups. So there are a bunch of Facebook groups around writing, and it may be writing in a specific genre or following a sort of guru in the industry. And you could be a member of one of those groups and ask other people in that group for recommendations. Um, could also be stuff like a genre-specific writing guild, like one of our authors is in Romance Writers of America because she writes romance novels. Or it could be a region-specific writing group. There are some New England-specific writing groups here. Um, and ask for recommendations within that group. And when you do that, you're going to get recommendations that are either genre-specific or region-specific, and both of those can be useful. Like if you're looking for a personal assistant, for example, in real life, who can go with you to um, book events and man tables for you and carry boxes and do things like that, a region-specific um, group is a great place to get that recommendation because you want someone who's local to your region. If you're looking for something like uh, website design or marketing images, using a genre-specific group to source those recommendations can give you people who are experienced with that in your genre. So depending on what you're trying to outsource will dictate in part where you should ask for um, recommendations. And when you get these recommendations, you should go back to the person who's recommending it to you and look at whatever it is that they've done. So if it's a website recommendation, look at that person's website. If it's an editing recommendation, read that person's book. Like, have an example of the quality of that provider from that person. Because sometimes indie authors are not so good at judging the quality of stuff. So someone may say, oh, I have this great website by this great designer. Here's the designer's name. And you go look at their website, and their website is actually crap. You may not want to use that designer. Just because it was recommended doesn't necessarily mean it's a good representation of that. I think this is a lot like movies. We have a friend who recommends movies, <laughs> and they're completely hit or miss. Like, sometimes we agree with her completely, and sometimes it is one of the worst movies we've ever seen. So, yeah, just because someone recommends someone or something doesn't mean it's good. Check for yourself, especially yeah. before paying. Know your source. Yeah. When you're looking for recommendations, really, Google should be your last resort. A personal recommendation for these types of services is always better. And if you do find someone through Google, make sure you look at examples of the work in question to judge whether it's any good or whether it meets your standards, and ask for references, and actually contact the references you ask for. So say you're looking for a cover designer, and you don't get recommendations, or you just the cover designers who are recommended to you are booked up, so you can't get one. 
if you Google for cover designers, make sure you look at examples of their design and try to verify those examples independently because some unscrupulous people could take other people's covers and say, oh yeah, I totally designed that. I don't know how common that is, but look out for it. Yeah. And if you can talk to the references, you should be asking things like, how is this person to work with? Not just whether they're any good, but will they respond quickly? Um, are they good about taking criticism or feedback? Will they iterate or are they really egotistical? At the same time, you're asking for free advice from a complete stranger. So, you know, be short, be succinct when talking to these references. That's true. And finally, think about whether the provider is within your budget. Budget could be negotiable. It doesn't hurt to ask. But if your budget is, say, $100 for a book cover and you're going to a website for some organization that does book covers for like $700, probably that's not going to work for you. No. I think it's unlikely they're going to come down from $700 to $100. But it doesn't hurt to ask. Just don't be annoying if you do ask because down the road you may want to come back to that person and have them redo your $100 cover, and you don't want to have established a reputation for yourself as someone they don't want to work with. And finally, as Kate pointed out, there's the question of hourly versus flat rate. Find out how you're expected to pay for this. In, in my experience, um, most of the... I, I think it depends a little bit upon what industry you're working in, but a lot of the time, especially when you're working with freelance sites, the people will be amenable to flat rate or uh, hourly. I'm slightly torn on this, but my experience, especially with the last uh, couple ones I've worked with, has been that I would advise – I like paying people hourly because I like paying people when they're working. And, and having been a freelancer before, frequently people are bad about estimating their time. They'll say, I will do this for $400 and, you know, you know, say that they're doing $40 an hour and the thing is, oh, it's only going to take me 10 hours. Well, it took them 20 hours. So now they've really worked for $20 an hour. And it's like I, I happen to be in a relatively good position financially. And so I like being able to pay people for the work they do when they do good work. That being said, this has screwed me twice now uh, with uh, working with new people who actually weren't that great with their time management skills and just kind of made my life miserable. So what I'm trying to be doing going forwards is my first job with someone, if at all possible, I will negotiate a flat rate up front and the jobs afterwards I will do uh, hourly. And, you know, the sometimes the flat rate uh, works in your favor. Sometimes it works in their favor. But either way, it's a price you're comfortable with that you've agreed up, up front. Um, the other thing to keep in mind with both of these is uh, set milestones and have the first milestone be something that is enough that you can judge the quality of their work, but no more. Make the first milestone as close as possible. And so like with a flat rate contract, it might be at each milestone, I will pay you X dollars or X percentage of the total. Have the first one be not much work for them and not much of the total. They get to the milestone. They give you the thing. You look at it. You go, yeah, you're not worth continuing with. I'm sorry. We're going to stop it here. And otherwise... 
you know, it might be, hey, this is good, or hey, this little needs little tweaks. Let's keep going, and that applies in both cases. But definitely have that first initial milestone. And just to give you some perspective on this, as someone who freelances currently, um, I've been freelancing for a decade now, and I have worked both hourly and flat rate projects. And as a freelancer, my goal when quoting a flat rate is to try to figure out how many hours that's going to take me and approximate that in the flat rate. So I'm not giving people a discount by doing it at a flat rate, but I'm also not inflating my own rate by doing it at a flat rate. And sometimes, as Kay said, it works out in my favor. Sometimes it works out in favor of the client. But hopefully it averages out over time. Yeah. And the more time you've been doing this, the more better you'll be at um, estimating your rate. The other thing is there have certainly been clients for whom I just haven't been a good fit. And so doing this milestone thing allowed us to figure that out early on and say, you know what, this isn't really worth continuing for either of us, so let's just walk away here. And when you do that, there's no hard feelings on either side. You just agree that it's not going to be a good fit. As long as you're polite and professional about it. Yeah, exactly. Know what the expectations are. So in other words, if you're doing it at a flat rate, you're not going to be surprised down the road when the cost for your project suddenly doubles. So Kay had this problem with one provider. He quoted him something like 10 hours, and Kay said, sure, yeah, I'll pay 10 hours. But then in like 25 hours into the project, it still wasn't done, and the provider at this point had demonstrated he wasn't capable of doing it the way Kay wanted it done. Capable of finishing it in any reasonable time. So finally, Kay cut his losses and said, forget it, we're going to stop here. Had to pay over double what he had budgeted and didn't get the finished project. Yeah. I mean, he could have given me something working or like... He could have given me, if I had a better articulate setup milestones, he would have given me a working minimal version of the thing. And if I had have done that, I may have actually finished with him because I would have forced him to structure his time better. But I also might have gone, hey, look, you're incompetent and can't do anything in the time you promised and cut my losses. And with, with, with the uh, milestone stuff, and make sure you are clear up front at this first milestone, we will check. I'll check in, see what, if I like what we're doing, and we may or may not proceed from that point. And just be upfront about that. And for you, as a person who's hiring someone, by doing a flat rate versus an hourly rate, you know what your final cost is going to be. So if you're going to pay five hundred dollars for a cover, it's going to be five hundred dollars, and that's it. If you're paying someone fifty dollars an hour to do cover design, they may be done in four hours, but they may also take twenty hours. It really depends on how much iterating you need to do and how good you are about communicating your vision up front and also how good they are about interpreting it and putting it on paper. So when you're doing an hourly thing, there is a lot more um, chance for fluctuation outside of your budget scope. So keep that in mind. And also keep in mind how much you are expected to pay when. So you may be expected to pay some or all of it up front, especially with a flat rate project. And... Just be prepared for that. And if you're expected to do that, make sure you are satisfied with that provider before you proceed. Because getting your money back if you're unhappy can be a nightmare. Yeah, just assume that any money you put out there, you will not get back. Unless you're using a service like um, Odesk, where they have escrow options. Are they Upwork now? Oh, gosh, I don't even know. It's been hard to keep track. Um, If you're using a service where there are escrow options then in theory, you're putting that money into escrow. So it tells the provider that, yes, this person is serious. They have dedicated the money to the project. 
But if the provider isn't doing what they say they're going to do for you, then you don't have to release the escrow. Right, and they have people who will arbitrate if needed. Another point I have is to clearly communicate your needs. And really, we've covered this pretty well, but just understand what you're there for and make sure you communicate that clearly to your provider. So make sure they know what your objectives are for this project, um, anything they should know about your brand or any expectations you have from them. Um, As Kay was saying, if you're planning to do a milestone-based contract in terms of payments, communicate that with them up front. Just make sure everything is clearly laid out between the two of you. And some people prefer to do phone calls for this because it's a lot easier to have a verbal conversation and go through, you basically cover more ground more quickly. If you're doing this via email, then you may send an email that has like three questions in it, and then the provider may send an email 24 hours later that has two answers, but they didn't really answer one of your questions very well. So then you have to send them another email, and then they have to send you another email, and this can easily drag out for weeks. If you have a 20-minute conversation, you can go over all these details and get all your questions answered at the time. Yeah. Um, but if you do do a phone call, make sure you follow up in writing, and make sure you clearly outline the details that you agreed on during the phone call in writing. And this helps later if there's a dispute for what you might have asked for. And it also helps to reiterate so that you and your provider are on the same page. Because what you think you took out of the conversation may not be what they think they took out of the conversation. So it's a way for you to sort of like double check. This is what we're doing, right? Right. Yeah. And if you do this in writing, this can save you the trouble of having a formal contract. It's certainly not uncommon for a lot of freelancers to do like verbal contracts, essentially, and quote you, oh, yeah, I'll do this project for this hourly rate for this amount of time and not have like an actual signed contract with you. But because those details are in writing, if either of you ever had to dispute the work, you have that um, written agreement to fall back on. So it's sort of like an informal contract. And things that you should have in writing include uh, the rate for the service, the length of time it's going to take to complete the service. And that's not just hourly, but also I'll get this done within a week or this is going to take a total of a month back and forth. Yeah. I mean, to, to belabor that point a little... Just because they say they can get it done in 10 hours does not mean they can get it done within 10 hours in the same week. That may be 10 hours over three weeks. You know, you've got to nail that down. To go back to the cover designer we've been using, um, Demonza, they have a policy that they will get you a cover design within two weeks. But all that means is you're going to get an initial concept within two weeks. Then you have to tell them what you liked or didn't like and go back to them, and they're going to have to redo it and come back to you. So it usually takes us over a month to nail down a cover with this provider. You need to be clear in writing what your service entails. So is it just a cover, or is it a cover and a promotional image? Is it a cover and a Facebook banner, or is the promotional image going to be a smaller aspect ratio for like a Facebook ad? Just put those details in writing. Yeah. What do you expect them to do? And ideally, you want the other person saying, yes, all this is correct. So, like, end your email with, just want to make sure we're on the same page. This is what you agreed to, or is this your understanding for our project? please confirm that this is your understanding of what's next. Exactly. So then, if you have to dispute this down the road, you have this record of, yes, this person acknowledged this was our agreement, so they didn't achieve it. And the other thing is to be communicative throughout the process. So 
again, to the point of milestones, early on, look at what they're doing and provide feedback to them. Um, maybe it's an audiobook pers- uh, narrator, voice actor. Listen to the audio like right away when they send it to you for a first scene and provide feedback. Do not wait for them to complete the entire project and then at the end say, actually, I want this, which is going to cause them to go back and redo the whole dang thing. Most people won't do that, and if they would do that, it's going to be so many hours of work on them to redo it because you didn't communicate poorly, they're not going to want to work with you again. And when you're hiring a provider, based on the things we've talked about here, um, these are the types of providers you're probably going to want to hire to outsource these non-writing tasks. You're going to want a website designer. You're going to want an editor. Don't argue, just hire an editor. Um, You're going to want a cover designer, and that person may also do ad images. If that person doesn't do ad images, you're going to want someone who does ad images. And these are the three or four basic people you're going to want to have when you're doing your non-writing tasks. Um, from there, you may want to consider hiring a virtual assistant, and that person can hand you handle some of these tasks for you, like social media, uh, answering emails, and they could also deal with administrative tasks for you. So you could say, here's my manuscript, hand that off to the virtual assistant, then they go back and forth with the formatting person and get everything uploaded to all the different providers. Generally, if you do that, you want to have a certain level of trust with them at that point. You yeah. probably don't want to hand all that off right away. There's also, like, any repetitive task you have, like, every night, and, like, Amazon's number reporting stuff is terrible, and every night, Daiquiri has to go in and record the numbers from Amazon and put them into a spreadsheet that's actually going to make more sense over time than what Amazon provides. And that is something, and, like, simple little repetitive tasks are great things for virtual assistants, but keep in mind that they're going to have to log into your account. That's and true. so you definitely – if when, when it comes to they're going to have to log into your account, you know, the, you have to think about do I trust this person enough to do that? And that also gets to using password managers so you can just make a one t- password for this thing that you can throw out and replace easily later on. And, and also if the service allows you to have multiple accounts, like if you're – giving someone access to your bank account to do accounting work. Um, Maybe give them a second administrative account access that maybe doesn't have all the same access, so fewer permissions. Or at the very least, that you can shut off that account if that person is doing something they shouldn't be doing. Hopefully this has been helpful for you. I know we sort of blathered on at length about it, but there are so many chances in your career to save yourself time and get things done in a way that is going to boost your career by hiring it out. Or to put it another way, there are so many chances you will have to focus on the stuff you care about and let someone else deal with the annoying stuff for you. Exactly. On that note, thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or something you want to hear about on a future podcast, hit us up on Twitter at BLL Press or on Facebook at BLL Press or via our website at brightlittlelight.press. Bye.